All right. Let's, uh, let's review, let's uh, introduce what we're doing this morning. Last week, of course, we looked at the healing of the leper and the centurion's uh, uh, boy servant, uh, where Jesus definitely exuded heaven's compassion and his authority. Uh, today, we're going to continue on uh, in the text with more of his miracles, but it's important that as we look at the miracles of Christ, it's, it's important to remember uh, or to learn what the purpose for them is, uh, because what we have a tendency to do as human beings is to try to make everything about us, and uh, if you, I always say YouTube, and, and, then, I'm, and then I regret it later, because I know that you guys will go search for it, um, but anyway, I, I like to, I don't know if I like it, I, I watch people on YouTube to see what is feeding into our culture, and I mean preachers, and, uh, and it's troubling the kind of things that they are relaying, and, uh, and they're saying that it's coming from the scriptures, but it's not, and when you go through the gospels with some of these people, uh, it is so distorted on the things they, with the things they say, and they eventually bring all of this stuff back to being about us, and it's not. Um, when, when we look at these miracles, they absolutely show God's compassion for our plight, uh, that he indeed cares. I mean, Peter says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for us. But the real purpose for these miracles was not to demonstrate his concern. He is concerned, but that wasn't the purpose. Uh, these miracles certainly demonstrated uh, the power, the authority of Christ, but that's really nothing new. I mean, from from creating the world to sustaining the world and keeping the cosmos in, in good working order, as we talk about the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, if something is tuned, it implies what? That there is a tuner. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus created it, he sustains it, and he also tuned it, okay? And uh, it, that is sufficient to demonstrate the power of Christ. So these miracles weren't simply to show that he's powerful, there is, of course, some level of application for us in Jesus' example as he shows pity and compassion, but that's not the real purpose for these miracles. One preacher I recently listened to says that Jesus performed these miracles as a mere man to help us to understand that we can unleash by faith the same power to heal, concluding that if Jesus could heal people by an act of his will, there's nothing but unbelief standing in our way that we might perform the same, okay? Um, that is not true, okay? And the purpose for these miracles wasn't to show us that we can do the same. The divine purpose, uh, even God's stated purpose for these miracles was to make much of Jesus in order to prove, in order to demonstrate, in order to verify that he is indeed the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior, so that we might put our trust in him, okay? So let us not get distracted or confused about the real purpose for Jesus' miracles. They point to him, they are a manifestation of his glory that we might believe upon him and obey him, okay? That we might be saved. John sums up the purpose in one sentence saying, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, 
and his disciples believed in him. So this first miracle, the turning of, of water into wine at the wedding, Jesus demonstrated, he, he proved who he was. And then his disciples were like, this is him. This is the one. And that's what he's trying to do with us. Okay. So let's go ahead. Let's read our text this morning. Uh, it's Matthew 8, verse 14 through 17. So if you'd please stand, we'll read God's word together. Matthew 8, verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Others translations say mother-in-law. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you have given Christ to us. And just as we took communion this morning, it's a reminder that Christ came to die that he might save. That is, that he would save those who believe upon him. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we look over these miracles, uh, the ministry of Christ, Lord, that, that we would, our hearts, our faith would be drawn to him. That we would, we would believe in him more. That we would trust him with our whole life. I pray, Lord, that if there's people here this morning, that if this is their first time encountering the historical Jesus the God-man that walked among us, performed miracles, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, and rose again, Lord, I, I pray that you'd inspire faith in them, and they would come to believe in the Son of God, that they might be saved. So, Lord, work in our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Go ahead and return, if you would, to verse 14. And I'll read through verse 15. It says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. So we're still in Capernaum. Uh, the word Capernaum means the village of Nahum. Uh, but there's no way to know if it refers to the prophet, the Old Testament minor prophet, Nahum. Uh, when I was in Israel, I learned real fast that you cannot say Capernaum or Capernaum and uh, expect the cab driver to get you there. Because they do not say Capernaum, they say Kafar Naum. Kafar is village, and Naum is Nahum. And uh, so if you happen to go to Israel and you want to get to the Galilean area, especially the archaeological sites of Capernaum, do not say Capernaum, unless you're on a guided tour and they speak American Bible, okay? Because, and we think, it's funny about Americans, we always think we're right in our pronunciation of words. We, we ain't, okay? And uh, I found that out. I wasn't on a tour. It was just me and two other people. We were staying at the Orit in um, uh, Netanya on the coast, and we were at the mercy of the, the indigenous peoples. And uh, so we had quite the experience getting around but we got it on a few things. Uh, but I'll never forget being in Jerusalem and needing to go to the bathroom super bad. It doesn't just happen in Mexico. And, uh, and I went up to this, this 
this woman, and she happened to be Filipino. And Filipinos are allowed into just about every country in the world, probably not North Korea, but uh, all uh, Muslim-majority countries everywhere. They go and they serve the elderly, the developmentally disabled. It's really neat uh, what God has done with the Filipino people. But anyway, she was there, and she was a caretaker. And, and I, I said, uh, team," And she goes, hmm? And I said, routine?" <laughs> she goes, what? She says, your English is, te- or your Hebrew is terrible. What do you need? I said, I need a bathroom. <laughs> and so she pronounced it correctly, said it's that way. And as I was running, she said, you need a quarter, or a, you need a, a, a shekel. And I said, whatever, I got a pocket full. So anyway, just prepare yourself for heartache when you go to Israel. So we're in Capernaum. We've come to Peter's home. Uh, now, if you have another translation, it may say Peter's mother-in-law. And uh, some people, when they read the text for the first time, they're surprised to hear that Peter was married. Uh, but here it is. Uh, he had a mother-in-law. I asked my eight-year-old son, Asher, I said, if Peter had a mother-in-law, what, what else did he have? And he goes, a wife? I said, yeah, so he got it. It's good. So, but Peter wasn't just married. Uh, he took his wife with him later after the resurrection, after the church was born, and he took her on his missionary journeys. Paul said this, he said, do we, not have, do, do, we, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and who? Cephas. Yeah, Cephas, that's another one of Peter's names. He also had the, the name Simon. So Peter was married as well as uh, a, f- a number of the other apostles, and Jesus' half-brothers, probably James and Jude. It is noteworthy how Paul here in this text was affirming his right to take along a believing wife. I believe, actually, that if he was married, he had a responsibility to take along a believing wife, even though the Roman tradition has said that priests and popes cannot be married. It's interesting. Someone biblically can choose to be celibate, but no church, no tradition has the right to forbid a certain class or any individual from being married. In fact, Paul says that forbidding others to be married is actually a doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 1. And wherever you see doctrine of demons, uh, beware, there's going to be uh, demonic fruit of that. Amen? All right, anyway, back to our text here. Um, I, love, I love how casual this miracle is. Uh, Jesus, he, he comes into Peter's house. He walks over to Peter's mother-in-law, touches her hand. The fever is gone. She gets up and she begins to serve uh, as she always had done uh, for those in the home. Performing miracles came as easy and natural to Jesus as serving others came to Peter's mother-in-law. He just walks in. And he touches her, fever's gone, and she's like, whoa, I have guests. And then she jumps up and she begins to serve them. It's amazing how casual it is. I also love the the practical nature of the miracle. Uh, Jesus just restored this woman to the very function that that brought her joy, that that blessed her. And I I love this as an example because uh, when I pray for people to be healed, I always pray first that God would be glorified by the healing. 
And then I pray that they would be healed so they can just get back to the things that they do, that, that God has called them to do, that bring them joy, that bless others. Just so they can get back to the life that God has given them. And I, and I, I think we see that here. Jesus raised her up, and, uh, and I'll bet that she also became a believer. Okay, that's my hunch. Let's move on. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So Jesus is presumably still at Peter's house, and by the time evening had come, uh, that is when people are coming in from their fields, it's, it's COB, it's close of business. And uh, so people quickly have made their way uh, to Peter's house, okay, because the healer is in town. Now remember, in a culture without modern medicine, news like this spread by word of mouth faster than the speed of Twitter. Okay? Uh, understand how, how valuable, how important someone like Jesus would be to a culture without modern medicine. These, these people are, are desperate for themselves. They're desperate for their loved ones. So they've, they've converged on Peter's house. And some, as you can expect, I mean, if you had heard that there was a, a healer in town, not some of these circuit preachers that go around and, and they, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to one of their meetings, but they, they stand at the pulpit and, and they, they say, I, I sense that someone has back pain. Raise your hand if you have back pain. You didn't know I was a prophet. <laughs> anyway, I sat in on way too many of those meetings growing up. And as a youth, I was just like, this is fake. This is fake. And it is. So, but imagine, you know, some have come uh, for a miracle. Some have come to see a miracle. You know, some are, have come for the show. Uh, as we'll see uh, later, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come because they're keeping a close watch on this uh, person who is a potential uh, Messiah, and then it won't be long, uh, Jesus is going to say something very soon uh, that will send them bonkers. And then they'll begin to attack and assault him. But we'll get to that later. Uh, among this crowd, this desperate crowd, are those who cannot even be helped by modern medicine. And it's those who are demon-possessed. There is no therapy, there's no medicine, there's no doctor that can cure this particular problem. It's a supernatural problem, and it requires a supernatural solution. The Greek word for demon-possessed means to be under the power of a demon, or demons, as we'll see later on. The demon-possessed person is called a demoniac. They actually become the dwelling place of a demon or demons. The person acts as the host, if you will, and the demon as the parasite. And just like uh, most parasites, this one is there to do damage, okay, damage. Now, nothing is said in the passage about the behavior of these possessed persons. We'll have to wait until Jesus gets to, uh, the, to Gadara before we see behavior. Neither does Jesus interact with the demons in this story. Uh, that will happen also in Gadara, and that'll be an interesting time together. 
Mark, in his account of this story, tells us that Jesus would not allow the demons to speak. He would not allow them to speak because they knew who he was, Mark 1.34. He wanted the demons to keep quiet for the same reason, I suppose, uh, that he didn't want the leper babbling about his healing to the public. He wanted to go to an actual official and then let that news trickle out from there. But he didn't want these demons to speak because they knew who he was. He didn't want uninvited attention from the religious leaders. Now, I think this is pretty great, though, uh, that Mark says the demons know who Jesus is, who he was. So the question is, how do the demons know Jesus? How do they know that? Well, these demons who are fallen, rebellious angels were with Christ when he created the material universe. Job says that the, all of the angels, and this is before uh, the rebellion of angels, that when he laid the foundations of the world, the angels shouted for joy, Job 38. Before the rebellion, uh, these demons formerly would gather around the throne of Christ and they would worship him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, they came and they went at his bidding, Hebrews 1.14. But we know one day an anointed angel who we call Satan led a rebellion of angels against God consisting of a third of the angels. The goal, of course, was to overthrow the king of heaven, to sit on his throne, and then from there rule over all of creation. But most of us know how pride works. It, it blinds our judgment, Right? And uh, he, Satan, got too big for his britches. And when he tried to face God, he encountered a power that was infinitely beyond his own. And so God cursed Satan and, and cursed those who rebelled with him. And today we know these rebellious angels as demons. Now, some people say that, you know, they've been contorted into ugly things. Um, you know, in the scriptures, nobody sees a demon except in a vision. And so I'm, I'm weary when people start telling me that they saw demons. Uh, Paul never says he saw a demon. Isaiah, n- nobody ever said that they saw demons except in a vision, but never in you know, this realm. So I get kind of leery. Uh, scriptures, Paul says that Satan can appear as an angel of light, uh, which is very deceptive, which is part of his game. But anyway, uh, Mark tells us that the, the, the demons knew who Jesus was was, and you know a great story, we'll, we'll grab onto it a little bit later, but you remember when Paul was in Philippi, and he's walking through the city with Silas, and the demon-possessed girl, the demon speaking through her says, we know who you are, your servants are the most high, and uh, they, even knew, they even know the servants of God. I guess that's kind of a badge of honor. And for now, at least, uh, demons are able by some means and to some degree to torment humanity. Uh, they're able to tempt believers. Uh, how many know that to be true? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Uh, they're able to harass or oppress the believer, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul knew that very well when a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him and uh, he acquired uh, a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was exactly. And for the unbeliever, demons can even take dominion over someone by possessing them, as we see 
here in scripture and in other places. So question, how does one become demon-possessed? Now, like me, you've probably heard of a number of scenarios by which someone may get possessed. Uh, You're probably thinking of ways that you've heard, but if you're like me, no one has ever given you an answer that is directly from the scriptures uh, about how someone got possessed. And that may be because the scriptures don't really say exactly how it is an unbeliever came to be uh, under the dominion of a demon. But I think there's a few indications in the Gospels that a person's involvement in the occult has led to it. And, and, and I say suggesting because the scriptures don't actually say how it happened. But there is a suggestion in Matthew 4, 24, and then chapter 17, verse 14 through 21, where the persons are said to be moonstruck, to be moonstruck. Uh, I can't even say the Greek word, uh, but in the Latin Vulgate, it was translated as lunatos, and in the English, it comes to lunatic. Yeah? Uh, it's often translated in our Bibles as epilepsy, uh, but that can be a dangerous translation because one might assume that every medical case of epilepsy is caused by demonic activity when it is not. But in generations past and in some circles, uh, people still think that everyone that behaves like an epileptic is demon-possessed. I think that's dangerous. In the Gospels, these demons made people do things that was similar to uh, a, a grand mal seizure, if you will, but they weren't epileptics. These people were being controlled by a demon. Now, the superstition of the day believed that these people who were demon-possessed and behaved in this manner went crazy during the different phases of the moon. But that superstition is rooted in the occult. Now, it's still in people's thinking today. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked with, uh, in, in various homes with developmentally disabled people, schizophrenics. And then when I got out of the service and transitioning into life, I worked at a state hospital. And there I worked mostly with uh, people that were schizophrenic. And there's always this talk in anticipation of, guess what? A full moon. Even modern man is uh, talking about uh, this whole thing, but it's rooted originally in the occult. As I mentioned in Acts 16, Paul was being harassed by a a demon-possessed girl who was a fortune teller. Now in the scriptures, fortune telling is always, without exception, rooted in the occult. It's condemned by God. And of course, you know the story when Paul cast out the demon uh, she was no longer able uh, to uh, do her trade, fortune-telling. Of course, that got Paul and Silas half beat to death, or beat half to death. How many times could you beat, be beat half to death? It's like being scared half to death. Don't let it happen twice, so you're finished. <laughs> and, uh, and they were thrown into prison for it. When Jesus went to Gadara, where he encountered two demon-possessed men, and then when he went to Phoenicia and uh, met this woman who had a demon-possessed daughter. Uh, In both of those cases, he was in pagan territory, places where uh, every religion was occultic, if you will. It's pagan. In Matthew 4, 24, it says that people were coming from Syria, which was pagan territory, and with them they brought those who were, the text says, moonstruck, demon-possessed. 
So in a number, uh, many of the New Testament cases of demon possession, there's some relation to the occult, but there's no mention exactly of how someone came to be subject to the demon. Now there's one final example in the Gospels that may shed some light. Sometime shortly after Jesus had uh, gone into Jerusalem that last, for that last time in the Gospels, and before the Passover meal, Judas had met with the chief priests to discuss how he might give Jesus over to them, Matthew 26, 15. And John tells us that Satan is the one who put that into Judas's heart. So it was Satan who tempted him, who enticed him to arrange this deal with the chief priest. That's John 13, 2. But it wasn't until after the Passover meal was done, even after Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the scriptures say that Satan entered Judas, entered him. And it was at that moment that Jesus turned to Judas and said, what you are going to do, do it quickly. And he immediately went out and it was night. It was a dark night, John 13, 27 through 30. So Satan entered Judas after Judas had succumbed to temptation to betray Christ. I can't think of anything more satanic than to betray the Lord. So we see Judas initially you know, cooperating with Satan's plan to commit what is the greatest crime I believe that's ever been committed. And the moment Judas was all in with Satan's plan, Satan then entered him and took over. So in the case of Judas, there was a dark motive, of course, that we see through the, the three and a half years that he's with Jesus. It was underneath him and then would eventually go as far as betraying the prince of life. The text reveals how Satan capitalized on the openness, the, the willingness, the vulnerability of Judas who was dissatisfied with Jesus. And I believe that that's the real danger. When someone is open to satanic things, they're willing, they're vulnerable, and nothing says that you're, you're open, that you're available, that there's a vacancy to be filled, like dissatisfaction with Jesus. And then, of course, as we see many times in the Gospels, uh, demons try to destroy the host. And what did Satan do with Judas? It says, in a sense, that Judas came to his senses. I imagine that Satan stepped away long enough that Judas could see all that he had done. And then it says that he went out and he killed himself. He hung himself. There, there may be even some evidence that he eviscerated himself in the process or was eviscerated because of some mechanism in his fall. Um, but yeah, he destroyed himself. Bad stuff. One final issue, and then we'll get back to the text. Is there demonic temptation, influence, harassment, and possession today? Well, there are some who believe that Satan and his demons, his demons are bound and can no longer do what they did in the first century. Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, they say, well, Satan's bound in the bottomless pit, uh, and, he's, and he's chained there. And, and uh, other commentators would say, well, it's a very long chain that he's on. Okay? And so people can say this all they want, but there's no passage of Scripture to suggest that Satan is currently bound with his demons and that he has no influence today. Uh, Paul, he spoke of Satan's presence, his activity in the last days when writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 
there's, there's every reason to believe when we look at the world around us uh, that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. 1 John 5.19 says that it is. Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, that he's the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I don't think anything could be more obvious. Daniel talks about the influence of demons over nations and governments, Daniel 10.13, and then verse 20. I believe that Satan accounts for much of the senseless cruelty and killing in the world today. Uh, I'm certain that he's behind every cult and occult in the world. Uh, he's the god of the abortion industry, uh, just as he was in the ancient world when uh, he took on the name Moloch, when the ancient peoples of Canaan uh, would, would burn their babies in the fire to Molech. Uh, I believe that he's inspired the word of faith movement, which is clearly rooted in the occult with its little god theology that we are little gods. I actually referenced that earlier about that preacher I was listening to. We can perform the same miracles as Jesus because, by the way, we're just little gods. I believe that many of the mass shootings, especially of children, are by demon possession. I believe that the ideology of the left with its Marxist views and moral relativism, it's satanic. All of the gender ideology, the intentional destruction of the family, the casting down of manhood and womanhood is all satanic. I believe with all my heart that social media is the greatest platform Satan has ever used to tempt, to indoctrinate, and to deceive the masses, especially our youth. Have I said it before? Parents, get your kids off social media. Let me say it again. Love your kids enough to get them off that stuff. And if they're to be on any of it, supervise it. If you're on it, well, just don't, okay? Just don't. You know, the only time I use Facebook, and I usually have my secretaries use it for me, is when there's somebody in the church that we don't know. And I need a, name, a face with a name, okay? And, uh, but to my delight, it seems like every couple of weeks someone is telling me, hey, you'll be proud of me. You know what I did? I got off social media. And I can't believe how less stressed I am and how much better I feel. It's crazy. So I don't, I don't think there's any other way to explain the, the, just the, the moral insanity that we see today that's now more than ever on a global scale uh, without the influence of Satan. Okay? Humanity is looking uh, more and more like it did before the flood. It's, it's once again ripe for judgment because mankind, like Judas, is open, willing, vulnerable, and eager like never before. Now, I, I realize how wicked humanity is by itself, but Satan has a way of taking the thoughts and the intents of a man, a woman, and then bringing it to a, a fruition that is on steroids, just like he did with Judas. So, is any of that stuff going on today? Yes, Satan is alive and well today. But what we see a glimpse of in the Gospels is that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Just our text is demonstrating that. And I think that the key phrase is in the first part of the second sentence here to demonstrate that you know, greater is Christ. It says that he cast out the spirits, the demons, with a word, with a word. I, I'm not sure which word it was, 
uh, perhaps it was out or go, whatever it was, they left. And the word cast out means to eject, to expel, uh, to throw out. Jesus was evicting demons, and he was doing it without any difficulty, without any difficulty. Now, the point is this. There's no power that can resist Christ. There's no force that can oppose him. Uh, When he's made his decision and he's decided to execute it, nothing can withstand him. His, His holy will supersedes all other wills. And when he decides that a thing will be done, there's, there's no struggle on his part. There's no struggle on his part. I, I wanted to give you the first part of Isaiah 63, which is one of the bloodiest parts of the Bible, and that's not why I wanted to give it to you, but it's referring to uh, a war in the end, and, and I've mentioned it before, but we, Isaiah is there and he's looking south to Jordan. And he sees someone coming his direction, just one individual. And he asks the question, he says, who is this uh, coming out of Basra with his, his clothing dyed red, whose vesture has been drenched in blood? And the answer comes, and it's Christ. And he says, it, it is I. And he says, I looked, but there was no one to come and help me. So I vanquished the enemy myself. And then it goes on to say that Jesus the Lord is mighty to save. He doesn't need help. There's nothing that can resist his will. At his word, every demon flees and every sickness is healed. In fact, there's an interesting thing. You know, Jesus healed more people in one evening than all of the Old Testament prophets did combined. Is that amazing? So we're not talking about a prophet. We're talking about the Messiah, the Son of God, okay? The Old Testament prophets, of course, healed people but they didn't go around healing people. Jesus, though, he went throughout all the cities of Galilee teaching and healing all of their sick. Understand, for three and a half years, Israel was the healthiest nation in the world. The healthiest nation. You know, if Jesus' first coming happened to be today, every hospital in Israel would be closed down. There would be no need for them. Modern medicine would become obsolete. People, they wouldn't go to the hospital. It's too expensive. Okay, it's too much of a weight, and they make you wear a mask still. (laughs) They would just skip their appointments and just go see Jesus. And that would really be the point. The whole point of all this is to make Jesus the object of faith, that they would believe on him, not just for healing, but for salvation. He is mighty to save. As we said, these miracles were done to verify Jesus' identity and to lead people to him. Matthew goes on to say that this was all done, of course, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities infirmities, and bore our sickness, that it might be fulfilled. Now, some people say, well, the purpose for the miracles was to fulfill prophecy. No. Jesus, of course, had to fulfill prophecy because God revealed his, his knowledge in prophecy, but that's not the purpose. In fact, when Paul begins to preach the gospel in the gen, or in, into the, he's out in the Gentile world, but he's preaching to Jews in the synagogue, what he did was he turned to the Old Testament, the prophecies, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's all, the, the prophecies, everything in the Old Testament, it was meant to point people to Jesus. So this statement, that it might be fulfilled, we're going to see this over and over and over. We saw it already 
in Matthew chapter one, we'll see it again and again. Jesus was fulfilling what was spoken about him. Uh, Interesting enough, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born and the descriptions that he gives about Jesus' life uh, is so messes with the skeptic because he thinks this must have been written after the time of Jesus. Too bad the Dead Sea Scrolls were dug up and demonstrated to be 200 years before Jesus. And I just read uh, Isaiah 53 yesterday from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, this passage that here is being quoted. The capital letters here, uh, it's somewhat of a free quotation by Matthew uh, from the first half of Isaiah 53 verse four. Uh, Now what he's doing is he's, he's quoting sort of from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, Here on the top you see uh, Matthew's quotation, and then on the bottom there uh, you see uh, from Isaiah 54 itself. You see that there's some differences between the way Matthew quotes it and the way that it's rendered in Isaiah. Uh, The reason for the difference is really this. Uh, It's just a matter of translation, okay? Uh, Matthew was quoting from the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old. Uh, that was actually the common Bible of the people of Matthew's day. It's the text most quoted. Uh, we would say the, the, the Old Testament manuscript most quoted by New Testament authors. Uh, the passage on the bottom is a translation from the Hebrew text which actually agrees best with the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we have, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, almost verbatim. Uh, What you have in your Bibles comes from what's called the Masoretic Tradition. And it was a a copy of the Old Testament that was copied uh, by the Masoretes over the centuries. And the oldest copy that we have is actually not that old. It's it's about a thousand years old. And so people would criticize the Masoretic text uh, sharply and harshly. But then, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, uh, they eventually were able to unravel the scroll of Isaiah and many, all of them but the book of Esther. So all of the Old Testament but Esther. And as they uh, began to translate the Old Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what they found out? They found out that the Masoretes were like copy machines. Okay, absolutely astounding uh, how, how exact they were. So pretty amazing how God has preserved his word. But anyway, both renderings, uh, Matthew's quotation, the text from Isaiah 53, they're, they're both good. Uh, the Hebrew word for grief, actually it's most commonly translated in the Old Testament Uh, as being of illness or disease, and the word for sorrow is almost always translated as sorrow, but it refers to that which causes us pain and suffering. So the Lord revealed to Isaiah that when Messiah comes, he would take their suffering and illness away from them. He's, He's prophesying about his healing ministry, okay? And what do we see in the life of Jesus? Doing exactly what the prophets said that he would do. He's delivering Israel from illness, disease, and that which caused them suffering. Now, if that doesn't describe what a demon does to you, uh, I don't know. But in light of that, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, 
But to what? I came to fulfill. So Jesus fulfilled the law by interpreting it properly, by living by its commands, and then dying according to its demands. Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus took our place in death, just as the law required. And he fulfilled the prophets by doing everything predicted about him in regard to his first coming. Now, the exciting thing is that he has many more prophecies to fulfill, but they all have to do with his second coming. And just as he fulfilled every prophecy literally concerning his first coming, he will fulfill every prophecy literally concerning his second coming. So folks, there's more to come. And the beauty about it is that all of the injustice and the evil, the the illness and suffering that plague our world, it's going to come face to face with Jesus and he's going to divvy out his judgment. Every prophecy will unravel exactly as the prophets foretold. They'll be just as accurate with the second coming as they were with the first coming. Nothing will go unfulfilled. Now, in review of what we've covered so far, we, and as I prayed at the beginning, we, we're looking at the historical Jesus. It's the Jesus of the eyewitness account. It's the real Jesus. He, he's not the Jesus that we so often see on murals and paintings, this weak, pathetic, fragile, sorry-looking Jesus that no one would follow. Understand, that's not the picture that Matthew or the other authors give us. Jesus was no wuss. He cannot be compared to so many modern men who are, are effeminate and pathetic, who are afraid to stand up for truth or to stand between the victim and the perpetrator as Jesus did with the demon-possessed. Jesus is afraid of no one. The scriptures say that on the day of judgment, the earth will shake, the mountains will tremble and flee from his presence, from Jesus' presence. And on that day, no one will stand, no one will be able to stand in his presence. Everyone, including Satan, will bow at his feet and they will confess that he is Lord. And as soon as Satan is done confessing, Jesus will cast him into hell forever. You guys, we're talking about the historical Jesus, the most powerful person there is. This is Jesus, the King of Kings. He's, he's Lord of Lords. And as we see him here in the Gospels, we're only getting a glimpse of his majesty and his authority. God is presenting Jesus to us as the one to trust. Every hope should fall on him. He alone is mighty to save. So listen, he's the only one who can take your sin and your guilt and take it to himself and then suffer your penalty. He's the only one who has the authority in himself to die for your sin, and he alone has the power to take his own life back again just as he did when he rose from the dead. And therefore, he's the only one that can forgive your sin. He's the only one that can secure your hope in heaven. He's the only one that can grant you eternal life. And the scripture says that he receives everyone who repents and puts their trust in him. That's the point of these miracles. That's the point of his ministry, is to draw your attention to him, that you might believe on the Savior and be saved. So the scriptures say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Go ahead and stand up with me, and we'll, we'll pray. I have to get my timing back, or the Sunday school teachers will, they will kill me, so... Let's pray and we'll end in some worship. Father, we love you. And Lord, without your son, we're doomed. 
not just as a race, but individually, we have all rebelled against you. And it leaves us little better than the demons, although we have the potential to be saved. But Lord, apart from you, we cannot. So I pray, Lord, that you would help anyone in this room who is outside of your your redeeming grace at this point, that they would trust in you and that you would draw them in or that you would save them. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are wavering in faith, Lord. What we've discussed this morning is the real Jesus. And I just pray that you would reinvigorate them, Lord, to trust you and to walk with you, believing you. So Lord, just grant us your grace, I pray. Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.